Thank you, uh, Sue Kramers. I don't even know if you're here this morning, but uh, just an amazing, amazing gift. Uh, when people uh, give us their raw like that. And uh, so, and by the way, I can't believe I forgot to do this in the first service. Um, but our church is uh, actually getting good at um, sharing their raw through prayer requests. They're left in that prayer room. We got a prayer wall in there. And now we have a prayer wall over here. I'll talk about this more. But prayer requests are only half good if they're given. They become fully good when someone takes it, takes it owns it, and just pours their heart over this prayer request for the next weeks. Uh, that's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. So you guys, anytime, you can even start right now if you want and uh, grab a prayer request or you can get one uh, after the gathering. I think um, all of this uh, just kind of fills or fits in this space of us looking at the prayers of Paul. Do we want to be a praying church? <laughs> you know, we can talk about prayer. We can say we value prayer. Um, but then uh, when we have opportunities to pray, let's go for it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, last week uh, in this series, The Prayers of Paul, we looked at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 24. Uh, his prayer for these Ephesian Christians, we learned that they were undergoing... Uh, some just incredible hardship. And Paul, instead of praying into those circumstances, and I'm not saying he didn't pray, pray into those circumstances, but the prayer that he left for us in Ephesians chapter 1, um, he, he really ends up praying for the thing that most matters. And he wants this church in Ephesus to know Christ. To know all that there is about Christ, but then to also just know him personally, intimately, experientially. Uh, and that's his prayer. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't pray in his circumstances, because in our text today, uh, we're going to see Paul praying into his own circumstances. This might be the one and only time where, where Paul does it, uh, but he does it, and it's significant. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. All right, you guys uh, sit for my words, but love to have you stand for God's word. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Paul writing to Christians in Corinth, I must go on boasting. That's, that's quite a way to start this chapter. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And now Paul's going to talk third person, but he's talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, which again, I do not know, but God knows, he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to talk about. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, 
I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, from becoming spiritually proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away, remove it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And now Paul's talking again. Here's his conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong. You can be seated. Now, we can't divorce Paul's prayers from Paul's life or divorce these prayers from the actual people he is praying these prayers uh, because like even in this letter uh, to the Christians in Corinth, there, there is a lot going on here. And, and, and let's just start with the city of Corinth itself, because I think it plays into uh, even some of the things that we just read. Uh, the city of Corinth at this time is a very significant city in the Roman Empire, a very large city. In fact, it's the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia, again, Rome's empire is, is broken into these regions or states, maybe like our country, and then each state or province had its capital. And, and Corinth happens to be uh, one of the capital cities of the province of Achaia. And Achaia is as Greek as it gets, because Athens, Sparta, uh, Corinth, these are all Greek cities. They're all within 100 miles of each other. Uh, but by the time of the, of the writing of this letter, Corinth has become the leading Greek city. Uh, one, it's a port city, which sits on a major trade route. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Corinth, which was actually raised by the Romans 240 years uh, before Jesus, was then rebuilt into this cool, uh, dynamic Roman city, and it became the entertainment capital of the Roman Empire, Corinth did. Um, and, and, and the primary forms of, of entertainment that a city like Corinth is providing the empire were primarily sex and sports. And uh, so it attracted uh, people with lots of money, the elites, uh, especially the young people with money, and it kind of produced this hip and cool celebrity culture. So when you're thinking Corinth, maybe you're thinking Hollywood or Las Vegas. It's this trendy, vibey city, highly individualistic. It's image-obsessed, new money, and this is what defines the culture of this city. In this city, then, a church is birthed, and this young church, you can, you can imagine, is, is vulnerable then in a city like this to hip and cool. So when these charismatic celebrity pastors come in and preach a health and wealth gospel, this church in Corinth just gobbles this stuff up. Now, what do I mean by health and wealth gospel? It, health and wealth gospel is this simple, that Christ comes into our lives to make us healthy and wealthy. 
that Jesus is the means to a good, prosperous, comfortable, pain-free life. And this is a dangerous message. Who doesn't want to believe a gospel like this? And this kind of uh, gospel is especially attractive to a culture like Corinth as it is to a culture like ours. Because what it says, if you want to be healthy, if you want to be wealthy, if you want to be a celebrity, if you want to be hip and cool, then sprinkle a little of Jesus on your life. Now, what's so backwards here? What's backwards is that the Lord and King of the universe in this gospel becomes the means to my ends. And tell me in this scenario, who is actually acting as God? I am. God and Jesus are here to serve me, my wants, my desires. When in reality, we are here to serve and worship him. So these Corinthian Christians, they so buy into this gospel that for even Paul to have an audience with them, Paul needs to prove his celebrity status. Paul, you need to brag about your connections, your pedigree, your resume, your credentials, all your claims to fame. We need to know this and we'll determine then if we'll listen to you. So here's the challenge for Paul. <laughs> Do I play this game? Because if he doesn't, he won't be heard. But if he does, like he says, I'm going to sound like a fool. And see, all of this is going on in our chapter, which is why Paul sounds the way he sounds. But he's trying to thread this needle. And you see the needle that he's actually trying to thread in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, even by the headings uh, that are in my Bible, um, First half is Paul and the false apostles, uh, because this is what's going on in the church. Look at verse 4. Paul says, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit received, or a different gospel from the one that you accepted, um, this can't happen. And he further explains this. He says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. No wonder uh, Satan himself is masquerading around your church like, a, like an angel of light. So he's calling this church out on this, but uh, now he's going to play their game, the game that he needs to play for him to be heard. Okay, I'll brag. <laughs> I'll boast. Verse 16, he said, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool. Since many are boasting in the way of the world does, okay, I too will boast. And you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. I mean, he's even using a little sarcasm. And he just goes on, he boasts and breaks. And that's what's going on in chapter 12. He says, if I must go on boasting, he is... He is continuing in this vein. But now in these first verses of 12, trust me, he gets their attention. 
Because here he describes these incredible visions and revelations and spiritual experiences that he has had in the Lord. How literally he's had this out-of-the-body experience where he's raptured into the heavenly places. Literally says into paradise itself. And trust me, this gets the attention now of the Corinthian Christian. They love this. But Paul is just using this to draw them in, not that it didn't occur in his life, but it's not what he really wants to tell them. But he tells them all this to open their hearts and their ears to what he really wants to talk about because now he describes his thorn. And he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, he never really describes this thorn except to say that it tormented him. And everyone's so curious about this thorn. And I studied this week. I, 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 I uh, listened to some scholars. Scholars uh, think several things about what this thorn could be. Uh, some think it, it, it's probably a physical ailment, a serious sickness that Paul has endured. Some even think it's a problem that Paul has with his eyes. He, he's losing his eyesight. Uh, some have suggested that it's a sin that Paul is struggling with, uh, possibly a sexual sin. Some have even um, suggested he might be struggling with homosexual desires. Uh, I think Paul's thorn although he doesn't describe it, I actually think he did describe it in the previous chapter in verses 23 through 29. Uh, because listen to what he says here. He says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the spanking. <laughs> they literally would spank an adult 40 times minus the one. That's Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night at, and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. That could very well possibly be the thorn. Now, one thing that we know from the text about this thorn, it's not a one and done circumstance in Paul's life, but this is a thorn that, that has has been in Paul's flesh for 14 years. And Paul says here, he says, I pleaded with God three times, take it away, remove it. And this is Paul praying into the circumstances of his life. And maybe in all Paul's other prayer, prayers, he doesn't do this, but this time he does it because this is one of the gifts of prayer. One of the great gifts of prayer is that we can actually pray into our circumstances. 
This is why the New Testament also says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares about you. That word for cast, it means literally to hurl. It's like take your burden and just hurl it on God. Why? Because he cares. Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, he said, give us today our daily bread. That's our circumstance. He says, deliver us from evil or the evil one that's praying into circumstances. Or or how about the time when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane? He's saying, Father, take this cup from me. Remove it. He's praying into his circumstances. And over the course of of all these years, I don't think Paul prayed just three times. Because remember, numbers to, to a Hebrew are also symbols. And the number three is the symbol of resurrection. This is Paul saying, I didn't just pray into that thorn, but I prayed for the resurrection of God to be applied to it. And so you need to picture Paul being this guy who's crying out all the time, God, heal me, restore me. I want to be a church that prays these kind of prayers. That we don't just pray nice prayers or or use prayer to say nice things to other people, which my tradition growing up is really good at that. God, I pray that they would know how much I love them. I pray that they would know how much we are with them right now. Listen, that does not need to be prayed. You can literally say that to someone like, we love you (laughs) and we're with you. Prayer, when you're praying into circumstances, go for it. God, heal them. God, redeem this marriage. God, restore this this child of yours to yourself. God, rescue them. God, deliver them. I want to be a church that, that, that prays these kind of prayers. And we don't just pray these kind of prayers for ourselves, but we're learning how to pray these prayers for each other, which means that we also then need to be a church that can be real with each other, where we can expose the raw things in our life. My marriage is broken. I'm struggling with sexual sin. My daughter's walked away from the Lord. I have cancer. I right now don't have enough money to pay the bills. I'm struggling intensely with depression. I want to be the kind of church that can can cast those burdens not just onto God's plate, but we can cast them on the plate of this community. Because here's the deal. We, We were not meant to do this thing alone. We are not meant to walk alone. We are not meant to struggle alone. We are not meant to carry heavy burdens alone. In fact, the very meaning of church is to gather together. We are in this together. And we do this by being together, but also by by walking together and, and shouldering burdens together. And think about the calling that God has, has placed on us. He, he says we are to be a kingdom of priests, 
which means that we are called to stand in the gap on behalf of each other. And, and, and the way that we stand in the gap on behalf of each other before God is God. Heal them. Restore them. God, resurrect this. And this is why this church, we, we had our prayer room up there. This is why you've noticed we've moved our prayer room down here. Uh, it, it's why we have a prayer wall in there. It's why we have a prayer wall over here. And, and, and really what we're hoping for with this is it will allow this church to do two things. Number one, if you have a burden, I don't care what it is, get it on either that prayer wall in there or this prayer wall over here knowing that you are casting that burden before the Lord, but you're also casting that burden before a kingdom of priests and that we are going to also go into to that wall, into that wall, and we are going to take a prayer request. We're going to own it. I took one today. I'm going to own this. I don't know who this is. I'm going to feel the responsibility. I need the prayer for deliverance from sexual sin. I pray that God would give me freedom from it. Can't wait to pray over this. And I want to be a church that just so freely we cast our burdens before each other and we are so... Uh, courageously be in a kingdom of priests and we're gobbling these things up and, and, and we're praying for our brothers and sisters, not just once, but we're pouring our hearts out to God on behalf of each other. Um, it's time for the church to be the church. And here's the thing. This church is incredible. I am in no way Right now, in my mind, thinking, we are so horrible at this, and we have to get so much better. I'm thinking God has already taken us on the journey, but there's so much more for us to step into in this regard. Let's do it. Our world needs a church, a, a true church that is being the church and Jesus said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. And right now, as the church, we are God's house, this house of prayer. At least we are to be that. And when I think about the first house, the tabernacle, then the temple, how around the clock, morning and night, there was this burning of incense at the altar. And as that incense went up before God, this pleasing aroma, you know what people did? They prayed. Luke 1, verse 10, uh, says, And when the time came for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Do you see that picture? The incense being burned, it's going up to God, and all the people outside are also, their prayers are joining that incense going up to God. That's why in Revelation 8, verse 3 through 5, it says this, another angel who had a golden censer or a golden bowl came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar 
altar in front of the throne. So what you have to picture, John is ushered into the throne room of God. He sees God sitting on the throne. And before God's throne is this bowl with this incense burning, going up to God. But in this bowl is the prayers of the saints. And it says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God, people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the bowl and filled it with the fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came pearls of thunder, rumblings, and flashing of lightning and earthquake. What's going on here? All those prayers filled that bowl. And that bowl became the fire of God. What's the fire of God in the Bible? It's the presence of God. And the presence of God was hurled upon the earth. And there were earthquakes. I want to be a church that's filling God's bowls. And that God has now something to unleash upon our world. Now, here's the deal. As we pray these prayers, as we plead with God on behalf of each other, I want to do this with a proper theology. There is a right theology. There is a right way to think about God. There is a right way to think about his gospel. And namely, when it comes to prayer, there is a right way for us to think about our thorns. Our thorns. Because suffering is such a fact of life. We all suffer. We all have thorns. We all will have thorns. I mean, those of us who are getting older, we, we know this. We feel this. We experience this. We feel it in our bodies as they're just kind of like falling apart and, and, and wasting away. But it's also true relationally. Over time, friendships, they grow, they blossom, and then they fall apart. The team falls apart. Friends move away, pass away. I was just talking to my, my parents this weekend. We had dinner together, and they were just talking about friend after friend who's passed away. I mean, everything that our hearts desire, our wants, our dream, dreams, I mean, they're like water in our hands, like we do everything to hang on to it, but eventually it just slips through our fingers. And I think this is true of all of our wants eventually. All of our desires, we might attain them, but in just a little while, they just recede, they slip away. And really, I don't want to sound so depressing this morning, but so much of life, isn't it just one loss after another, one sorrow to another sorrow? You know, if I was speaking to any generation before my generation, you know what they'd say right now? Duh. I mean, our grandparents' generation and all the generations that went before them, they just kind of knew that life was hard and at times downright painful. They knew that life was filled with disappointments and with pain. It was filled with loss and tragedy. They knew that everything was falling apart, that we are falling apart, that even our world is falling apart. And they didn't freak out then when life was painful. They weren't shocked when bad things happened. They didn't complain. They weren't surprised by suffering. And today we're all almost shocked when suffering happens. And probably even more importantly, we've lost the capacity to suffer and to suffer well. 
And we look at suffering as this strange thing that is to be avoided at all costs, which is why the prosperity gospel is so tempting because it says once I give my life to Christ, there will be no more suffering. There's not going to be any more hurt or discouragement. There's not going to be any more bad days. There's not going to be any more depression or seasons of struggle or that when these things come into my life, I can just pray them out or I can muster up enough faith and they'll be gone. Now, I've been a pastor for quite some time, and, and I've walked alongside of a lot of people who have suffered. And one of the things that I have found that when people suffer, when they're enduring something really painful or difficult, the question that comes to their mind is why? Why is this happening? And that is a very, very appropriate response to suffering. But what I've also found is that so few people have an actual biblical framework or a theology of suffering to answer that question. Do you know why we suffer? Do you know why you suffer? See, because what these Corinthian Christians with their prosperity gospel expect Paul to say when Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord, take it away. Heal me. They expect Paul to say, and God did it. He healed me. He removed it. Because someone who subscribes to prosperity gospel Thorns in suffering and weakness have no place in that thinking. And when suffering and thorns occur, the logical place they go to is something must be wrong with me. I mean, remember Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking along and they see this blind man. He's been blind since birth. And what do, what do his disciples ask Jesus? They say, who sinned, this blind man or his parents? Because that's the way they explain it. And see, this then is how all thorns, all suffering are explained. Someone must have sinned. Someone lacked faith. These kind of things only happen to spiritual losers. But here's Paul shocking them. He's freely talking about his suffering. He's talking about his weakness. He's talking about his thorn. And he's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed. In fact, the verse 30, at the end of chapter 11, he says, if I must boast, you want me to boast? You want me to brag? You want me to play the game? You want me to play? Okay, I'll play the game. I'll brag about my weaknesses. That's what I'll brag about. And then in verse 10 of chapter 12, he pushes this even first. He says, I don't just boast about my weaknesses. He says, I actually rejoice in them. I rejoice in my weaknesses. I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my trials and my afflictions. And trust me, you have to be left asking right now, how, Paul, real, how can you say this? He can say this because he's a proper theology of suffering. He knows why he suffers. He knows who's behind his suffering. He knows why it's happening to him. In fact, look at what he calls that thorn. He has a little subtitle for that thorn. 
He calls it a messenger of Satan to torment me. See, Paul knows also the the role that Satan plays in our suffering. Paul's the one who said our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this dark world. You better believe there is a war going on right now. But here's the problem. If you just stop there, uh, you're going to then attribute all human suffering to Satan. And here's the danger of that. You're not only making Satan bigger and more powerful than he really is, but you're also in danger of minimizing God and his role in our suffering. And we do this all the time. So think about this. As Paul is pleading with God, he's pouring out prayers. Take it away. Deliver me. Heal me. What's God's response? Does God respond to Paul and say, you know, Paul, if you just had a little bit more faith, if you would pray a little bit more, maybe even add a ton of fasting, you know, maybe we might just defeat and deliver you from Satan. Is that what God says? No, God almost says, you know, Paul, I kind of like that thorn. You know, Satan might be using this thorn to torment you, but I can use this thorn in your life to keep you, Paul, from being, com- being conceited. And even more than that, Paul, my power, my power is made perfect through thorns. So here's the question. Who's causing this thorn? Whose design is this? God or Satan? I'm telling you, the way you answer this question is huge. Whose power is behind the thorn that is in Paul's life? God says, my power, my power is made perfect through weakness. And see, so many Christians today see this world as as a dualism of these two equal powers, God and Satan, who are just battling it out. And it's like, oh no, who's going to win? You know, if we pray more, if we fast more, if we do more, maybe God will win. Are you kidding? God sits on the throne. Christ is the king. And Satan is nothing more than a punk compared to Christ. He is. The only thing Satan can do to a follower of Jesus Christ is what God allows him to do. He can't touch you. He can't harm you unless God gives him permission. So when you suffer, don't be tempted to think. God would never allow that. God would never do that. 
Because I'm going to preach this over and over again. The very thing that you and I need in the midst of our trials is the reality that there is a God who sits on the throne, who is sovereign, who is in charge, who knows exactly what we need, when we need it, who knows the beginning from the end, has a perfect plan for our lives, even if we can't see this, and is only allowing what he's allowing because he loves us. And listen to Sue Kramers pouring her heart out to God. I didn't know where this was going this week. I just told the staff, staff, find people who are people of prayer and let's let them share. And the first response back to me was Sue Kramers. And here we get her pouring her heart out to God. Heal my daughter, God. Heal her. And we probably can't even begin to imagine the, the, the amount of prayer that the Kramers prayed on behalf of their daughter. But did you see at the very end, she, she, she got to that place where she could still say, God, I don't even know if I like you anymore, but I trust you. Several weeks ago, we heard the same thing from Kate Deet. She gave us such a gift as she too shared her own pain, the loss of her daughter. I mean, it was amazing what she shared. I remember the one thing that just punched me. She said, I find great comfort in knowing the time of Kate's death was in God's hands. That's Kate saying, God is in control. And see, if you can accept this truth that God is on the throne, yes, you're going to hurt, but you can rest and if you can't accept that and you insist on being on the throne, you know what? All of this is going to fall on you. You didn't do enough. You didn't have enough faith. Is there sin in your life? And I'll tell you, it's in this where Satan is so real because he attaches his messages to every thorn in our life to torment us, to mock us, to beat us down. There is a reason why the Bible calls him an accuser because in suffering, that's exactly what he does. He accuses us, which is one of the reasons why suffering is so devastating because sometimes even the messages that Satan attaches to our suffering are more devastating than suffering itself. But also know this, that when Paul prayed, when he pleads with God, God also attaches his message to that thorn. Paul, I know this hurts. But my grace, Paul, is enough. But why, God? Why do you allow these things? What's the purpose why did my daughter have to die? Why does my spouse have to have cancer? Why do I have no friends? Why am I single and can't get married? Why? And you have to know, and you have to be able to listen, God will always attach his message to your suffering, just like he did Paul. He will say things like, my grace, my grace is sufficient, and my power, Paul, is made perfect in weakness. And I trust that Paul's experience, not just what he knew intellectually, Paul had a profound 
and radical experience of Christ and his grace in his weakness that he can say in verse 10, this is why I delight in my weaknesses. I delight in them. In fact, this, this clause, when, 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 when it said, my power is made perfect in weakness, it actually could better be translated. When our power comes to its end in weakness. In other words, when we are so depleted of all of our resources, when we come to the end of ourselves, then what? <laughs> well, that's when you read the end of verse 9 where it says, in that space, when we're at the end of ourselves, Christ's power just comes and rests on us. In fact, uh, I've found this to be one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Especially when I've been in places where literally I, I, I feel like I'm coming to the end of myself. I have nothing in the tank, Lord. I am empty. It's, it, it's in this place where we're what Paul says here, I have experienced. I know that there is testimony upon testimony in this place of people who have experienced this, that Christ's power really does rest on us. In fact, this word for rest, it's the Greek word skene. Uh, it's the same word that's used in John chapter 1 when it says the word became flesh and it's skenade among us. It literally means to make its home. So when we're barren, when we're depleted and empty and helpless and weak, God's heart just so runs to us in our weakness and his grace and his power come into that weakness and just make its home there. Think about Gethsemane. I mean, there Jesus is dealing with the thorn of all thorns. And like Paul, three times he pleads. He says, God, please remove this. Take this from me. But what does God say to Christ? Same thing he says to Paul. No. Why? Because what's next for Christ is the cross. And the way God's ultimate power, his redemptive resurrection power will be unleashed in the world is through weakness. And why do we think it's going to be any different for us? God's power is always unleashed through weakness. Hey, Paul had to come to this too. Before Paul met Christ, he was a Pharisee. I mean, he was just like these Corinthian Christians. He's using his religion and his spirituality to be in control, to control God. God, look at me. I mean, I fast, I pray, I help the poor. I'm a good person. I do all these things for you, God. That means you have to bless me, God. You have to heal me. And when we do that, Who's this about? Is it about God or me, us? But then Paul met Christ, the resurrected Christ. And up until that time, Paul thought Christ is this loser. 
defeated by Rome, crucified by Rome. Rome won, Christ lost. But now the eyes of his heart are open and he realizes, wait, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's been resurrected. And all of a sudden then, the penny falls from the head into the heart of Paul. Christ didn't lose. Christ won. Christ won on a cross by losing. He triumphs through defeat. His resurrection power was unleashed through weakness. And I'm going to tell you, that contradicts everything that we've been taught. Everything the world screams at us. And a lot of what we've been taught in the church. That the way up is the way down. That the way to get life is to lose your life. That the way to power is by giving up power. That the way to become secure and strong in this world is, is to admit that you're actually weak. And see, Paul didn't just find Christ, but he found Christ's path and the power of God, that path that comes through weakness. It's redemption that comes through thorns. It's a resurrection that comes through death. So Christ crucified, don't just think this is a message that Paul preaches. This isn't just a sermon. Paul would say, Christ crucified is my very life. It's the path that I walk. It's the life that I want to put on display through my own life. That when people look at my life, they wouldn't just see Christ, but they'd see Christ on a cross. This is why Paul boasts about weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions. It's all those things that Christ crucified puts on display for, for, for a world to see through Paul's life. And some of us right now, we've been going to church our whole life. We've been hearing sermon after sermon, and we're still scratching our heads. Why am I not changing? Why am I not growing? Why is my life not bearing fruit? For the simple reason that for the life-transforming power of the gospel to be experienced in our lives, we must find Christ and we must go his way. Where life is no longer about me, where it's no longer about getting what I want, where it's no longer about me being in control. So what's your boast today? Like Paul, can you honestly say, my one boast is in Christ and his cross? And if you're going to ask me to brag or boast in anything else, the only thing I can brag about are all those things that reflect the cross of Jesus Christ in my life. I will boast about my suffering and my weakness. Can you do that today? And see, this will free us up then to pray big prayers into our circumstances where we don't have to be in control. We can just put them on God's plate. God, do what you need to do. And we can rest. Joni Erickson Tata spent over three decades paralyzed in a wheelchair. And she talked about the time when she went to Jerusalem and she made it to the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed 
that person who was paralyzed for 30 years or 36 years. And she said, this is what she writes in her book, The God I So Love. She said, I could imagine all these paralyzed people lying on stretchers. This is hard to read with a guy like Josh Buck in the room. (laughs) She says, I could imagine all those paralyzed people lying on stretchers and mats, and I saw myself among them. And then I thought, oh, Lord, you waited more than 30 years to bring me to this place. She said, I gulped hard, remembering the times that I'd laid numb and depressed in a hospital bed, hoping and praying that Jesus would heal me. That he'd come to my bedside as he did to the man on the mat. That he would say to me, rise up and walk. That he would not pass me by. And now after 30 years, here I am. I made it. Jesus didn't pass me by. He didn't overlook me. He came my way and he answered my prayer. He said no. And as I turned my thoughts to God, I prayed, Lord, your no answer to physical healing meant yes to a deeper healing, a better one. Your answer has bound me to other believers, taught me so much about myself, purged sin from my life. It strengthened my commitment to you, forced me to depend on your grace. Your wiser, deeper answer has stretched my hope, refined my faith, and helped me to know you are the best. And you are good. You are so good. And then she said, I let the tears fall. She says the most amazing words. I know I wouldn't know you, I wouldn't love you, and I wouldn't trust you were it not for. And I looked down at my paralyzed legs for this wheelchair. And I've heard the same things come out of your mouth, brother. And they're a gift. If we want to repent being Corinthian Christians, you don't have to stay in your chair. You can come up. God, I'll be the first. Corinth is so in my heart. It's still in my life. And yet, God, I want to be like Paul who wants to be like you, Jesus. So I repent, God, of the Corinth in my life, the way that I sometimes use you, the way I want to sometimes control you. God, whatever you would have for us, may we say, you are good. It is well. We love you. We trust you. 